Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study. This morning we'll be looking at verses 14 and 15 of Hebrews chapter 2. We'll read it together and then we'll pray and we'll get into the study. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are victorious. We thank you for the cross where the enemy was judged, where the victory was won. We thank you for the resurrection where you showed yourself victorious over sin and death and the devil. We thank you that though we have a foe, he is a defeated foe. And we praise you that though we fight in the battle, we fight from a place of victory. And we thank you that the battle is not ours, but the battle belongs to the Lord. And that the victory is the Lord's. And all we need to do is walk in it. And we ask that today, Lord, you would teach us to walk in victory. We don't want to be Christians who settle for anything less than all the benefits of the cross. And so, Holy Spirit, come and minister the truth of the cross and the benefits of the cross to our lives. Appropriate these truths into practical outflow in our lives. Help us to walk in victory over the schemes of the enemy. And we pray that through the preaching of your word and the witness of your church, many more would be saved, that many more would be set free from slavery. Thank you that, Jesus, you came to set the captives free, that you are able, that you are the conquering lion, that you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We ask that this morning you manifest that victory in this place and teach us to walk in it. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're working our way through Hebrews chapter 2, and we found ourselves talking about the cross, a four-part series on the cross. We started a couple weeks ago with the fact that Jesus has recaptured our lost destiny through the work of the cross. And then last week we looked at the fact that Jesus has regained our lost unity through the cross. This week we rejoice in the wonderful fact that Jesus has released us from satanic bondage through the cross. And next week we will be very encouraged, each one of us, to remember that Jesus restores us in times of failure because of the cross. Let's remind ourselves of the importance of last week's lesson, that through the cross, we are united. We are united with God, and we are united one to another. Where previously there was separation and broken relationships, there is now unity and restoration. Where fallen man was separated from a holy God, Jesus Christ came to pay our debt on the cross that he might give us new life and set us free from that debt that we might approach God and be accepted. And so through the cross of Jesus Christ, we've been given unity, and God is our Father. And we saw that striking statement last week that Christ is our brother, and he is not ashamed to call us brethren. And we rejoice over that fact because we know ourselves. And yet he is not ashamed because of the cleansing of the cross, because of the forgiveness of the cross to call us brethren. And we are united one with another. 
God is our Father, and we're united with Him, but that means that we are brothers and sisters. Amen? Amen? And we need to cultivate that unity. We need to work to preserve that unity. Satan will do everything he can to rip Christians off of the benefits of the cross. And one of the most wonderful benefits that we have is our unity with God and with one another. And Satan will work overtime to try to snatch our unity. And so we've got to work very hard to maintain our unity. That means that we need to reject lies and we need to believe the truth. That means that we need to cultivate love because love believes all things and hopes all things and bears all things and endures all things. We need to choose to think about the best about one another. We need to choose to forgive one another when wronged. We need to choose to be humble. We need to choose to show preference to one another, to consider each other as more important than ourselves. We're going to have to work very hard at unity as a church and as a body of Christ because the enemy comes against it solely because it was a priority in the heart of Jesus Christ. It was the subject of his high priestly prayer the night before he was nailed to the cross. The subject of that prayer was that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. And since that prayer was uttered, all the forces of hell have raged against it but we fight from a place of victory. We already have the unity. We are bound together in the spirit by the blood of Jesus and the work of the cross. What we gotta do is cultivate it, work on it, tend it, care for it, pursue it, amen? And this unity is reason to rejoice. And in this unity, there is much to enjoy. And this unity becomes pivotal in times of difficulty. And remember, that's the context of the book of Hebrews. The people here who were the recipients of this letter were experiencing tremendous difficulty. And in times of difficulty, we must pursue unity. Our unity with God and our unity with one another. That is a protocol for times of difficulty because the visceral response, the carnal response, the fleshly response, nay, the demonic response is to begin to break fellowship for whatever reason. Anger, bitterness, disappointment, unmet expectations. The tendency so often in Christians is to break fellowship. We need to purpose right now that when difficulty comes, be it relational, be it governmental, be it doctrinal, whatever it may be, when difficulty comes, we're going to cling to our unity. First to the unity that we have in the Lord, and then secondly with one another. Amen? Amen. And then that brings us to the first verse that we're looking at this morning, verse 14, reading it once again. Since the children share in flesh and blood, speaking of you and I, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Let's remind ourselves of this truth, that because of sin, Death entered into creation. Death was not meant to be. We were not made to die. We were made to live. That's why death is so hard. That's why funerals are so difficult. That's why we can barely deal with it because death is not God's design. We were not made to die. We were made to live. But when sin entered in, 
death entered in also. Romans declares this in chapter 5, verse 12. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we see that sin and death are equated or connected rather. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So for humanity then, generally speaking, because of sin, there is death. And there is both physical death and spiritual death. Both those deaths are present because of sin, because of the fall of man. Physical death and spiritual death. Please remember, death does not mean annihilation, biblically speaking. The Bible does not teach annihilation. It doesn't teach that this body is annihilated. It teaches a resurrection of the body. Amen? Nor does it teach that our spirit is annihilated, but once created, it is eternal. So we're not talking about annihilationalism. I mispronounced the word, but who cares? Death does not mean that we are annihilated. Death is crossing over from one thing to the other. There is physical death where we go from this life to the next, and there's spiritual death, which is both present now and which ultimately is called the second death in Revelation chapter 20. And that is for those who reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, refuse to receive his mercy refuse to accept his gift of eternal life, and so they will experience eternal death. It does not mean they cease to be. It means that they will be eternally separated from God in a place called hell. So there is physical death and spiritual death that are a result of sin. Now, humanity is already spiritually dead and is destined to physical death. Concerning physical death, it says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and then the judgment comes. So every person is going to die, unless you're raptured, and that's awesome, and I'm praying for that. <laughs> but generally speaking, it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Concerning spiritual death, we already spoke about the future tense of it, which is the final judgment, where we're cast out from the presence of God forever and ever. But there is the present manifestation spoken of in Ephesians 2.1, which says to humanity, and you were dead in your transpest and trans... Tra <laughs> it was going so well. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So because the wages of sin is death... Humanity is dead in their sins. Speaking of separation from God, speaking of an inability, an inability to know God, an impossibility, an impossibility of communing with God. Humanity prior to salvation is spiritually dead cannot communicate, commune with, be with, know, be accepted by God because of the sin issue. That's what it means to be spiritually dead in the present tense. When we come to Jesus Christ, we are made spiritually alive. Amen? then we can know God, we can experience God, we can commune with God, we can be with God. We are accepted and adopted and secure 
in God. But in order for us to be brought back into life, spiritual life, from spiritual death, the cost of sin had to be paid. And there is a debt. The wages of sin is death. That debt had to be paid. But because we ourselves are sinful, and utterly so, we could not pay the debt ourselves. It's impossible that we could ever pay for our sins. So if you're caught in some sick religion that's got you running on a wheel like a hamster, trying to make up for the bad things, hoping that in the end there will be a pair of scales and your good will outweigh your bad, give it up. We cannot pay the price. We cannot service the debt incurred by our sin. For we ourselves are utterly sinful. It is as if you owed a hundred dollars but you were dead broke. You could not pay that money back. You had no ability to pay that money back because you were broke. In the same way, we are spiritually broken, destitute, and bankrupt. And so we cannot pay the debt for our own sin. But because God is love, 1 John 4, 8, he is willing to pay that price for us because God is love. He's willing to pay what we ourselves could not pay. Now listen. <clears throat> if the debt is death, the payment is life. If the wages of sin is death, the only thing that could service that debt is life. But remember, it can't be our lives. We ourselves are sinful nor can the blood of bulls and goats ever fully atone for sin, the book of Hebrews says. We'll study that part in about 26 years. <laughs> Chapter 9. <laughs> but a life had to be given to pay that price. God offers to pay that price for us. But there is a problem. God is eternal. We believe in and we affirm the biblical doctrine of the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. That he is not created, he has always been and has always existed as a co-eternal, co-equal member of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen? God is willing to pay the price, but how can an eternal one die? The price is a life. No humanity, no created thing could pay the price. The debt is too great. How can an eternal one die unless he takes on flesh and blood? And that is the purpose of, that is the miracle of the incarnation. That's why it says in verse 14 here, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, became flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. You see, through and only through the incarnation, God draped in humanity, is Christ able to pay the price for our sin by giving his life. Only in the miracle of the God-man could the eternal one ever die. 
When he comes to earth, he becomes fully man, and yet he is still fully God. How does that work? Our brains can't quite comprehend it. All we know is that Scripture affirms it. We do not deny a doctrine of Scripture because our puny brains can't comprehend it. That's humanism. We reject humanism. We are supernaturalists. We believe that there is a power greater than us who is the God of the Bible. And that His ways are not our ways. They're far above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. Though we cannot fully comprehend how He is both fully man and fully God, Scripture affirms it and we believe it. Amen? Amen. And that then solves the dilemma of how can the eternal one die to pay the price for us by draping himself in flesh and blood and giving that life. And so Revelation 1, 17 and 18, the words of Jesus Christ. He says, I am the first and the last, speaking of his eternality, and the living one, and I was dead. And behold... I am alive forevermore. Look, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Through his work on the cross, through the incarnation and the death and the resurrection, Jesus now holds the keys to death and Hades. Remember, humanity forfeited so much at the fall. Jesus redeems us. He holds the keys of death and Hades. So what Christ has accomplished through his death on the cross then is to render powerless him who previously had the power of death, that is the devil. Now what does it mean that Satan has or had rather the power of death? What does it mean that Satan had the power of death? It does not mean necessarily that he has or ever had the power to remove life from living creatures. It's not that that power was inherent in him. He does not have the power to remove life from living creatures. That prerogative is reserved for God alone. Only God can confer life and only God can take life. He alone has that authority and that creative power. Amen? Amen. Nevertheless, the devil is a killer. And though he does not hold the very breath of man in his hands as God does, he is still yet a killer. So it doesn't mean that he has a power to just remove life in and of themselves. But what it does mean is that death is part of his dominion. Death characterizes his kingdom. Death characterizes his workings. He is the one who introduced death by seducing man away from God. And he is always seeking to lure humanity toward death. He is always seeking, for the Christian and for the non-Christian, to lure humanity toward death. That is his his occupation. That is his obsession, to lure humanity toward death physical and spiritual. And so Satan deals in the woes and the destruction that come from behaviors associated with death. Satan deals in the woes and destruction that come from behaviors and characteristics that lead to death. 
That's his goal. Is to maim humanity. For humanity was created in the image of God. But through the cross of Jesus Christ, it says that the devil has been rendered powerless. Somebody ought to rejoice. The devil has been rendered powerless. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through his death on the cross, he might render powerless him who had, past tense, the power of death, that is the devil. So what does it mean, practically speaking now, that the devil has been rendered powerless? The New American Standard translates the Greek phrase, or the Greek verb, powerless there. Uh, The New King James, the Old King James, and the NIV say that the devil was destroyed. The New Living Translation says that uh, through the cross, the, the power of the enemy was broken. The idea is this, that he is rendered inoperative. He's not destroyed in the sense of annihilated. Right? That doesn't happen. But he's rendered powerless. I think the NASB has it right. He's rendered inoperative. His power structure is broken. And so what the cross does is render impotent the devil's power to carry out the full effects of death. That is hell. He wants to hold people captive to hell. He wants people to for sure be going to hell. And what the cross does is remove from him the keys of death and hell. Jesus holds them, and so he sets captivity free. And so the enemy's right and power has been revoked to carry out the full effects of death, that is spiritual death, eternal separation from God. Therefore, he cannot make anybody go to hell. Nor does God send anybody to hell. People go to hell when they absolutely refuse the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. If you reject his work on the cross, that he was judged in your place, then you will be judged for your sins because God is righteous and he will not ignore sins or he would cease to be righteous. He does not extend mercy without payment and Jesus made the payment. If you reject his forgiveness and his payment upon the cross, you will pay for your own sins. There's no declaring bankruptcy. There's no getting out of it. Nobody will rescue you after death. In this life, you decide for or against Jesus Christ. It is appointed for man to die once, and then the judgment comes. And if you don't accept his forgiveness now, you will be judged for your own sins. And by default, you will go to hell. That the Bible says explicitly was created for Satan and his demons. There are only two options after death. It is either heaven or hell. The Bible does not teach reincarnation. The Bible doesn't teach karma. The Bible teaches that we die once, and then it's judgment. And there are only two options. 
you're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. The price has been paid. All that is left is for you to choose. You must choose whom you will serve. It's either the Lord Jesus Christ or it's the devil. The Bible does not offer any other option. And the Bible alone stands apart from every other book that has ever claimed to be holy through its prophetic value, through its historicity, through manuscript evidence, and through billions of changed lives. The Bible is the word of God. The second thing that it means that Satan was rendered inoperative, rendered powerless, is that his power to sway humanity toward death was broken. His absolute power to sway humanity toward death and toward behavior that brings death and destruction was broken. He is not sovereign over man anymore. Jesus sets the captives free. You can follow Jesus. You can choose life. The power was broken. He's still working, but he does not have absolute authority. For the one who accepts Christ's work on the cross, spiritual death is then removed. For the one who accepts Christ's work on the cross and appropriates it to their lives by faith, spiritual death is removed, both presently speaking and in the future. Separation from God now is removed and eternal separation from God is removed. And physical death loses its sting. Amen? Amen. For the Christian, physical death loses its sting. It's still present in that it is the transition from this life to the next, but the sting of death is gone. The grave no longer has its victory. Let's read it in 1 Corinthians 15, if you'll bop over there real quick. 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, we'll start in verse 50, a little bit of context. We could start in verse 54, but verses 51 and 2 and 3 are so good. Paul writes and says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Speaking about the fact that this body currently is not designed to exist forever. For the Christians, we are looking forward to a glorified body. This body is decaying day by day. Amen? Yes. <laughs> Some of us know that more. Huh? This body is decaying <laughs> day by day. It's not fit for eternity. Perishable cannot inherit imperishable. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep was a, a first century euphemism used in the church for die. Okay, because Jesus, when he talked about Lazarus, said he's sleeping. This is a nice way of saying a Christian was dead. It doesn't teach soul sleep. The Bible doesn't teach that. Behold, I tell you, mystery, we shall not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, 
and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. This is talking about the moment known as the rapture of the church by Jesus Christ. When there is the shout of the archangel, and the trump of God sounds, and in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ shall be raised, meaning resurrected bodies, and we who are alive and remain shall be changed. And we shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the sky, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Amen. Now, the point of it is verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, or said differently, sin is a sting that results in death. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, that is, the guilt that we incur under the standard of God. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You see, for the Christian, because we have eternal life and the hope of the resurrection of the dead, we rejoice. We rejoice in the victory. The sting is removed. Christians don't deal with death in the same way. At least we shouldn't. Because we know that we know that we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we are absolutely assured that on that day we will see Jesus and we will see one another. And so that removes the barb and the sting and the pain and the torment from death once and for all. And that enables us then to be free from fear. And for a church like the Hebrews whose lives were threatened for practicing Christianity, they needed this truth. They need to cling to this truth because they were afraid and the threat was real and it was imminent. And so verse 58 says, therefore my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. Don't let the things of this world or the schemes of the enemy or the threat of oppression move you, but always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. Jesus Christ and his cross gives us victory over the most feared thing humanity has ever known, and that is death. Man, Christians should worship. Man, Christians should be full of joy. We should be the most blessed, excited, stoked, happy-go-blessed people in the whole world <laughs> because of the cross of Jesus Christ and that the thing most feared by humanity has been removed. Back to Hebrews very quickly, please. So we move on to verse 15. I'm going to read verse 14 again because I love it. Hebrews 2, 14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver, note the word, might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Notice now, the fear of death keeps humanity in slavery. 
The fear of death causes humanity to be subject to slavery. The fear of death includes the fear of pain associated with the process of dying. The fear of separation from all that we know and those whom we know. The fear of the unknown because there are in this world so many competing theories about what happens after you die. And the fear of judgment and punishment because all of humanity, no matter what lie they tell you, every single man, woman in the world has a sense of judgment coming. God sees to it. As much as they would suppress it, deny it, push it down, mask it, cover it up, and medicate it, all of humanity has a fear of judgment and punishment. Now, all of these fears are removed for the believer, the follower in Christ Jesus. The fear of pain is removed because Paul, who knew pain, said, I don't consider these present sufferings even worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. It's not even worthy to be compared. That's why in the ancient church, men and women were able to sing praises while being burned at the stake for their faith. The fear of separation is removed, for we know that our citizenship is not of this world, but it's of heaven. And it's not separation, it's being reunited. It's unification. For we know that we will be united with God and we will be united with the body of Christ. The fear of the unknown is removed because the Bible tells us explicitly what happens after death. So that's removed. And the fear of judgment and punishment is altogether banished for Jesus took our judgment and our punishment for us. And so then God's perfect love casts out fear. God's perfect love manifests in the person of Jesus Christ casts that fear that is common to all of humanity out of our hearts and lives. 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love or has an experience, is not walking and is not knowing the love of Jesus Christ. I want to read, I'll just read it to you. Don't go there, Romans 8. Might even have it on PowerPoint, but Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. So there is then for the Christian this incredible sense of security and confidence and that fear that is common to all of humanity is gone. And the joy of the Lord and the joy of his salvation becomes our strength in times of difficulty. And through that, we are able to be more than conquerors. It means that we put on display the benefits of the cross in our lives. But for those who reject Jesus Christ, there is this impending sense 
of doom. It is that elusive, nagging, gnawing feeling that keeps humanity searching for an answer that is not to be found in this world. It is that elusive, nagging, gnawing feeling that keeps humanity searching for an answer and all that the world has to offer. But it's not found in this world. And by this, of this, Satan takes advantage. And by this, he keeps humanity in slavery and in bondage. And so what Satan does is he endeavors to seek people. He, he, rather, he endeavors to seduce people into pursuing pleasure in things that are contrary to God. He does that for the non-Christian who also seeks to do that for the Christian. He wants to seduce people to seek pleasure in things that are contrary to God and therefore destructive by nature. The passing pleasures of sin, Hebrews 11 says. We'll get there in 34 years. <laughs> Satan keeps humanity in slavery and bondage by promising to satisfy us by giving us things that cannot satisfy. Promises to satisfy humanity by giving them things that cannot satisfy. By definition, they cannot satisfy for they are temporal. And they don't deal with the problem. They might suppress it for a while. They might mask it for a time. You can medicate it for a season, but it doesn't deal with the root problem. It's like having cancer deep in your body and putting a topical solution on your skin. It doesn't work. Satan wants to keep humanity in slavery and bondage by enticing us down a road to death disguised as life. Jesus said that the way to life is narrow. But the way to destruction is broad, and there are many who are on that road. And Satan wants to entice humanity down a road that leads toward death. And because many are on it, we think it must be the right road. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it is death, Proverbs says repeatedly. He wants to entice humanity down a road that leads to death. He keeps humanity in slavery and bondage by promising things and never delivering. Like a slave bound to a cruel master, human beings find themselves forced to keep searching for what they can never attain. They try everything, but nothing satisfies. Does anybody remember that before you found Jesus? There's pleasure, to be sure. The passing pleasures of sin. There's temporal, seasonal pleasure. And there's fun that lasts for a time. But it is always void of peace and contentment. 
There is pleasure and fun, but it is void of peace and contentment. And the human soul as designed by God longs for peace and contentment. And it is only found in Jesus Christ. But Satan is working overtime to keep people from Jesus. John 8, 44 says, The devil, Jesus speaking, The devil was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his very own nature for he is a liar and he is a father of lies. So Satan's primary tactic against humanity then is lying. He lies to people about this life and the life to come, about the nature of this life and what works in this life and the nature of the life to come. And through slavery to fear, Satan leaves humanity oppressed, depressed, stressed, bored, in despair, wasted, limited, and defeated. And Satan's lie is that humanity can avoid these things or overcome these things by amassing enough wealth, by maintaining youthful appearance, by searching for adventure, by falling in and out of love, by gaining the marks of success through extensive travel and in satisfying our every carnal whim. Satan lies and says that you can overcome that elusive, nagging, gnawing feeling of judgment through wealth, relationships, possessions. What we're called to do as Christians is identify the lies for the lost world. That's why we preach. We are called to identify the lies, to expose the lies by holding up the truth. That's why we take Bibles to work. That's why we read the word of God every day because we're living in a culture that is saturated by satanic, deadly lies and we hold the truth. That is why we study it. That is why we're attentive to it. That's why we forego other things to give ourselves to the study of the word of God because it is here that truth is found. This is in the word of God and the person of Jesus Christ, the light that exposes the darkness, the truth that dispels the lie. And we are to be light bearers in this world. And then having become Christians ourselves, we must continually be careful to identify the lies that we've bought into subsequent to salvation. Remember, we are not yet saved from the presence of sin. And the old nature has not yet been fully eradicated as it will be when we are with the Lord. Satan no longer has power over us. His power has been broken. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not let you be tempted beyond that which you are able to endure, but with the temptation will provide a way out also. See, Satan and his temptations don't have power over us, but, but, but what Christians themselves often do is buy into lies. And the thing about a satanic lie is it's incredibly subtle. 
It's wonderfully attractive. And it makes humanistic sense. It's always easily justifiable. We can easily find the rationale for it. We can always work out why we deserve it. But in the end, it's satanic. And it works death in our lives. It works destruction in our lives. And I don't know how you identify the lies unless you inundate yourself with the truth. I don't know how you do that. There is the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of God works with the Word of God for those who have the Word of God. If you're in prison in Saudi Arabia for being a Christian and you don't have a Bible, his spirit is enough. He will teach you all you need to know. But you're not there. You have the word of God. And your society is far more insidious in its satanic deception. Therefore, we have to commit ourselves all the more to the word of God. And Satan sells lies to Christians all the time. And we must identify them. And then combat them with the truth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says that our weapons, prayer, the word of God, praise, our weapons are powerful before God, mighty with God for the tearing down of strongholds and for the destruction of fortresses for the tearing down of every knowledge that, or every lie that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We've got to identify lies that we've bought into. That you're not forgiven completely. That you're not cleansed from that. That you'll never get over that. That you have the right to always be angry about that. That's a lie. You see, when you come to the cross of Jesus Christ, you surrender your rights. The lie that you deserve that, that's a lie. Must identify the lies, cling to the truth, and in that, there is healing. In the lies, humanity is hijacked, which leads to more extreme behavior and acting out in the search for that elusive, nagging, gnawing feeling which leads to brokenness. Broken relationships and broken lives. Jesus warned us of this. He said in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I came, said the Lord, that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to set the captives free to conquer sin, death, and the devil, that we might have life and life abundantly. And through abundant life, humanity is healed, humanity is set free and set right. And through the abundant life of Jesus Christ, which eradicates death and the things associated with death and the work of the devil which goes toward death, we have then right relationships. The cross of Jesus Christ gives us right relationships with God and with one another. Gives us healed lives. 
Any relationship is able to be restored through the grace that is realized at the cross of Jesus Christ. And because we no longer need to find our validation or our sense of worth from what other people think about us, because we receive that through God and the cross of Jesus Christ, we are free to love. We are free to receive love. We're free to forgive people. We're free from disappointment because we don't have to expect to find our satisfaction in people because Jesus satisfies us. And in that, there's healing through the cross of Jesus Christ. And there's freedom. There's freedom. Satan wants us in bondage and captivity, and Jesus came to set the captives free. And whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Absolutely free. It's for freedom's sake that he set us free. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Free indeed. And so the Christian, having been set free, must pursue freedom. Did you notice that Jesus Christ connected our continued freedom with abiding in his word? If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And then he gave the exhortation about freedom. The truth sets us free. Deal in the truth. Don't deal in the lies. Expose the darkness. Before Christ, our lives were characterized by slavery. After Christ, we have been set free. In the 16th century, Martin Luther preached a sermon in which he was speaking primarily to children. And he was giving them advice on how to answer questions about their faith. If someone asks you, Luther said, what it means to say that Jesus is Lord, this is what you should say. I mean by this that I believe that Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, has become my Lord. How? By freeing me from death, sin, hell, and all evil. For before I had no king or lord, the devil was my lord and king. Blindness, death, sin, the flesh, and the world were our lords whom we served. Now they've been driven out, and in their stead there has been given to us the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of righteousness, salvation, and all good. Amen. That's the truth that we have in the cross. That's the life that was given to us in the cross. Have you come to the cross of Jesus Christ? If you're here today and you've never humbled yourself before God and repented of your sins and called on him to save you as the only savior of the world, you must do that today because we are not promised tomorrow. People die every day. None of them were expecting it. You must repent of your sins today and be saved by Jesus Christ. This is your only hope for eternal life. There is no other way. 
Jesus rose from the dead to give proof to his words. He is the life and the resurrection. Have you come to him? You must do it today. It's very simple. You just call out on him in faith. Jesus, I believe you. I believe that you're the savior of the world. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm doing wrong things. I know I'm on the road to destruction. I am asking you to forgive me, to save me, and to set my life right. When you pray that prayer in your heart or with your mouth and you mean it before the Lord, he's going to save you. He's going to deliver you from captivity and from the fear of death. And he renders powerless the enemy in your life. And then for the Christian, Satan has no power except for that which you yield to him. No power except for that which you yield to him. If you yield to him an area of your life, you must realize that Satan is a squatter. If you give him ground, he will take it. And he will tie down. He will lay claim. He will set up camp. He will develop a stronghold. And that happens through the lies. You must identify the lies and cling to the truth. Is your life indicative of life or death. What I mean is, because of your influence, are things around you blossoming or wilting? Where Jesus Christ is, there is life. If you're walking with the Lord and representing him, there will be life coming from your life. Are you walking in abundant life? It's ours today, amen? Lord, thank you for these beautiful, wonderful truths. Wow. Why does anybody believe anything else, Lord? This is so good and so right and so true. And we just ask the Holy Spirit, you would appropriate these things to our lives. Lord, we want, we really want every benefit of the cross. So Holy Spirit, come now and help us. Identify anywhere that we've bought into lies. Please, Holy Spirit. I can't even think of them in my mind, but you know what they are. Would you please identify to hearts little lies that have taken root? And then, Holy Spirit, you're the teacher of all things. You remind us of everything Jesus said. So tell us what the Word of God says about that, and then set us free by the Holy Spirit working through the Holy Word. Please, set us free, Lord. Help us to walk in freedom. Jesus, thank you for the blood by which we are cleansed, by which we are forgiven, through which freedom comes. Help us as your people to walk in that freedom, to know that freedom, to rejoice in that freedom, to live in it, to cultivate it, to share it. Help us, Lord, to live the abundant life. Come and do a work in our midst now. You need help this morning. The prayer team is up here. They're mighty in prayer and able to help. Let's get with the Lord. Let him minister freedom and abundant life to us.